Hello and welcome to this week's BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Scott Horsworth, ex-Nobu London head chef, who launched his very own Freak Scene as a pop-up restaurant in July 2017. Pre-COVID, Freak Scene went on to become an ever-popular restaurant in the heart of Soho, London, and is opening in a new location very soon. We get to know more about what makes Scott tick, his perspective on the realities of business in food and hospitality, and how he went from washing dishes in Bunbury, Australia, to walking through the doors of Nobu as head chef, with quite a few tales along the way. Let's start at the beginning and start with your first proper job and take it from there. You know, it was as an apprentice chef um, at a hotel called the Lord Forest Hotel in, in Bunbury. Bunbury. Back in its heyday, it was built by Alan Bunbury Bond. is another great name. Just Bunbury. Saying. <laughs> so that, that was my first proper job. I washed dishes there um, in the summer of, I don't know, 1990 maybe, something like that. And then... Um, so how old were you at this point? 15, I think. Oh, wow. And then I went, and then I went to start year oh, eleven. Were you not? Yeah, I was going to say, were you not schooled? Yeah, it was summer holiday, so I was, <laughs> okay. I was sort of doing yeah. doing it at that stage. And then I went to start year eleven. I was most interested in running back then because I was running for Western Australia in the cross country team. Okay, and I did a couple of uh, national competitions, and so I was mostly if I was going going into year eleven with with the focus on on competing nationally again and, and focusing on running. And then I got a call from the executive chef from the hotel one day, you know, about, I don't know, halfway through the year of year 11. And um, he said he was a French guy and he'd been the sous chef at Le Gavroche here in London. Oh, very nice. So he's quite a serious, um, you know, dude. dude. Yeah. yeah. He, he was uh, very serious, actually. <laughs> anyway, he said, look, uh, monsieur, I've got a um, apprenticeship for you. Do you want to come down and um, have a look at it and have a talk about it? Wow, well, we must have seen something in you then. He might have been, I might have run out of numbers to call, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Bottom of the list, but hey, yeah. we'll try this one. <laughs> Someone set fire to his address book and yeah. uh, this is all he's got. <laughs> so um, I went for it because I thought, I, I, I quite liked the idea in the kitchen because all the guys in there were like, kind of like these wild rock stars, you know, they were creating all this stuff and how do they know what to do? Why, why are they moving so fast? How do they just create, you know, 10 kilos of potato salad? What's going on? This is amazing. This was all like, you know, witchcraft to me. Yeah. And I thought it was rock and roll as well. Um, so um, I, I, just went, I just went for it and, um, and got stuck into that apprenticeship. And I've, and I've loved cooking ever since. I have to say I'm one of the, those, those people that are, are quite blessed in that I love what I do. Did, did you cook beforehand or was that sort of the offer of the apprenticeship the first time you really thought, well, hey, I've, you know, I've never boiled an egg or kind of fried oh, no, an egg? Or, <laughs> I, I had cooked a bit. Okay. Um, my mum was a tremendous cook and my dad used to get me to cook um, mainly nachos and tacos, <laughs> which tasted nice. exactly the same <laughs> when I was much younger. But, you know, the first thing that – I was in the kitchen, a professional – professional maybe a commercial kitchen is the right way to say it as opposed to professional kitchen – um, when I was about 13 or 14 because um, I, st- I started a garage band in school trying to trying to be a bit like my brothers. You know, they were off in, in a rock band and I, I desperately wanted to sort of follow that. And so, Are you the youngest? I'm the youngest, yeah, yeah. and they were, they were quite a few years older than me. So I'd, I'd pulled this really <laughs> ramshackle band together and I played just about any instrument that was lacking in the band. So I'd try and learn guitar badly, try and learn <laughs> drums bad. My drums were more my strong suit at, the, at that time. So I'd rehearse all week, rehearse, jam all weekend. And my mum didn't like the idea of that. She sort of thought, well, I don't want you going down the same route as your brothers kind of thing, just because, you know, she worried about them on, on the road on, when they're touring or whatever. You need to learn some work ethic and some discipline. 
So what you're going to do, we had family friends who owned a hotel called the Club Hotel and had a Chinese restaurant in it. You're going to go down there and cook on Saturday mornings and then what you want to do the rest of the weekend's up to you. You're not going to get paid, by the way. But I got paid in like sweet and sour pork and fried rice. <laughs> which was, right. Yeah. was pretty good pay, actually. <laughs> but I got down there and I was using a big meat cleaver and I was chopping vegetables. Um, that was my first uh, unpaid Job and first experience in a, in a commercial so kitchen. Somebody clearly not told you that you don't use a meat cleaver no, to chop but you vegetables. Know what? When I, I discovered this for the first time when I went to university, there was in my hall of residence, there were a number of Chinese girls because it was a girls only hall of residence. And because it was self catering, so you would cook your own food. We'd all rock up to the kitchen with our wooden spoons and our spatulas and our four saucepans <laughs> and our whatever. They would have a slow cooker. And the biggest fuck off cleaver you've ever seen in your life, and that was it. And that was it. And they, just and they would everything. do everything with an enormous, terrifying cleaver, Include which was presumably all for threatening you when you were annoying defense. them. <laughs> yes. Well, it's true. You can use a cleaver for some um, intricate work. Somehow, it does work. Yeah. So the first job is as an apprentice. How do we get from there to opening a restaurant in France? Well, um, I qualified, went to Perth for a while and worked at, do you remember a place called 44 King Street? I do, yes. yes it was a yeah. great, great yeah, place. Yeah. Very eclectic menu. Um, they did their, roasted their own coffee in there. They oh. baked their own bread, made their own cakes. And the, At a time, presumably, when that wasn't quite so. Very much so. And it was it, one it, of the sort pioneers of, in Perth yeah. anyway. And it had sort of, it was the first where sort of New York, type warehouse restaurants. Like previous to that, the restaurants are very formal and so this was kind of very cool and considered to be very leading edge from an interior point of view and coffee and food. So. Definitely. And the owner, um, I think his name was Mark, I can't remember his surname, but he had a winery in uh, Margaret River and he produced a King Street red blend and yeah. a white blend as well. Uh, so everything was sort of going for it and, and we made our menus fresh every week and they, a lot of the dishes didn't last more than about, you know, five or ten days because we're changing things up seasonally. It was really, really happening. So I had a great time working there. I think I worked at the Hyatt for a little while and then decided uh, my mate from Bunbury had been away for a bit and he said, I'm coming back to drive around Australia. I've got a bunch of Swedes with me. Do you want to come? I'm like... Okay. okay. Seems yeah. fine. <laughs> Seems legit. Does the Pope shit in the woods? Yeah. <laughs> But I ended up in um, Queensland and then uh, the Great Barrier Reef and um, applied for a job at Hayman Island, um, the, the sort of most prestigious resort out there. I didn't get it first and so I headed back to Western Australia and as soon as I got back they called me. So I had to go back again <laughs> for our flight yeah. up to Brisbane, then up to Hamilton Island, then a boat. And so I worked there for a year or so and um, I met a girl who became my wife. We, we decided to travel to Canada together. Um, so we went to Whistler and it was the wrong time of year. There was and, no snow. <laughs> well, they, it was the best spring <laughs> snow um, ever. Ever. So they were celebrating that, but they're winding the season down. There were no jobs. Uh, so damn. whilst we could snowboard, you couldn't work. So we decided to get on a bus and took a bus across Canada, which was pretty annoying, but it was pretty cheap. And we got to Toronto and found a job and had a, had a great job. It was the first time I was a sous chef and they said, you, you can be a sous chef. I said, no, I can't. I haven't got enough experience. And they're like, yeah, of course you can. So I, um, I did this job there and it was great. But um, I, got a, I got an email from a friend of mine who I'd, I did a bit of work with in Taipei. While I was in Hayman Island, on Hayman Island, um, we did an Australian food promotion in Taipei, Australian produce promotion it was with the sister hotel. And I, the executive chef was Swiss and we got along pretty well. And he said, look, I've, I was in Taipei and I uh, got thrown out of my bed with the earthquake that happened recently. I've, I've had enough of it here. I'm going to go back to Switzerland and we're doing this hotel opening in Zermatt. Do you want to come and join me? And I said, 
Of course. So I, I headed off solo to, to Zermatt to live for a season, which was mind-blowing. I mean, right. So chefing during the day or kind of for service and then boarding, assumingly, when you weren't uh, in the kitchen. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I did more cooking than I did um, snowboarding. I mean, they, they were big mountains for me and I'd only just learned previously, the previous spring in Canada, how to snowboard. So I wasn't very good at it. But so here I was up near the Matterhorn, you know, which is pretty huge, uh, trying to make my way down. The best thing to do for me was uh, just sort of just go down slowly, find a bar, have a beer, go down slowly, find another bar tucked away somewhere. That's amazing how much, how better your boarding gets after each <laughs> beer. It's kind of your beer goggles kind of make you feel like you're a good boarder. Yeah. <laughs> I was a champion by and the And then you break several bones No, 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 you don't when you're drunk. This is the thing, you just fall and over, like you, just you kind of laugh a little bit and you get up and away you go. It's true, so. you somehow you bounce better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I did that season and then, uh, my mate, same mate that I drove around Australia with, Mike, um, he said, look, uh, next season, come over to Chamonix. He'd been there a couple of years in France. you got to come over because this guy, he's going to, you know, he's going to spend some money on a restaurant. We can all run it. We can all be partners. There's a couple of other people involved. Come over. And I'm like, well, this sounds like a great adventure. So him and I and a couple of other people stripped out this old Savoyard fondue restaurant. Oh, that amazing. stunk like cheese. So we had to rip all the wood panelling out because... Wow, where was this? This was on the main strip in Chamonix if you're coming down oh, from yeah, the station. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was brilliant. It was called, I think it was called the Bistro de la Guerre. So yeah, so we opened this kind of, um, I suppose it was a bit Pan-Asian and I remember talking to a couple across Which the road. Which in Chamonix must have been a, everybody must have been like completely open mouth. Yeah, yeah, but at first, anyway, I guess now every second restaurant would be sort of Pan-Asian in some way, you know, it's kind of trendy, but back then no one was really doing it. And I remember telling the, there was a lovely couple that owned an, um, an art supply shop across the road and we're talking one day and they said, what sort of food are you actually going to make? And I said, oh, you know, I've been looking at the markets and stuff and I, I saw these rabbits the other day. I'm thinking about doing a Thai green curry of rabbit and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like, no, they're so like, rabbit, it's for stew. And I'm saying, yeah, but a curry kind of is a stew. It's just you know, different flavours. Flavoury stew. Like, no, not having it. But we did it and it worked. Uh, we got open eventually. We we begged and borrowed from mates who were other sort of ski bums, I suppose. One guy was a sparky Aussie guy. Loads of Aussies, actually, English and Swedes, helped yeah. us get the place open. They'd come at night. They'd snowboard or ski all day, come at night time and do a bit of carpentry, rewire things for us, hook up the gas. <laughs> all in return for a free meal or something like yeah, that. We yeah, we gave them a bit yeah. of money as well, but they, mm. they weren't paid that much. I remember one night we, was, we were trying to paint the place because we were coming up to the opening, so we all mucked in and did the painting and one guy had been skiing all day, came in, had a few beers and we'd put a temporary scaffold up and he's painting away, had his headphones on and just stepped off the scaffold. Oh, my God. He was a young Aussie guy as well. Yeah. Brilliant sense of humour. He just got straight back up. <laughs> like shook himself down. Away he went. Drink, if you're drunk, you're bound. There you exactly. go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Experienced. And how long did you do that for? I was there just under a year, I think. We we traded through the summer as well. We closed for a little bit in the summer when it was, you know, just, just at the end of the season when everything goes really flat and um, then opened up again for the summer season when there's a lot of um, hikers. Uh, hikers, mountain last, bikers. Last time I went to Chamonix was the middle of the summer and it was lovely. It's really beautiful, yeah, right? It's just beautiful. lovely. Yeah. I mean, we had um, we had some friends who were on the on the world circuit of mountain biking at that stage. Um, and one of them, one of them was, became the world champ, female champion. Oh, amazing. Um, and we were riding with them. I, mean, I was attempting to ride with them. Everyone else could kind of ride with them. But, you know, <laughs> again, I was kind of new to these mountain sports and uh, having a few accidents. I did have an accident and sort of 
compressed all the bones in my chest at one stage, which was incredibly painful. So I had to take some time out. But that also... God, you're really not selling it. Oh, no, it was great. It was awesome. You know, they... It was awesome. I almost Strengthening died. It was awesome. experiences, you know. Yeah, yeah the, body, the human body is incredibly <laughs> resilient. We forget this. But I didn't feel that great about being there after a while because, you know, because I had that kind of bit of a, a crushing yeah. and, you know, the business was pretty slow in the summer and uh, we thought we we're going to have to close it. So I thought what's the next best thing to do is come to London for my, you know, uh, obligatory schooling in cooking, you know. All the, all the, everyone used to come here and get their butt kicked. So I came here and wandered into Nobu. And what, what would you say your biggest fuck-up has been? Looking at the restaurant group, I had, say group, we had four restaurants, um, Kurabuta, which meant there were a lot of opportunities getting sort of thrown under me, my nose uh, uh, quite often. So people after the first year or so were saying, hey, um, you know, come out to Mandarin Oriental Bodrum and, and open up a space there. And I'm like, yeah, we can do it. And then people would say, we're going to open six of these in Germany. Yes, we can do it. It didn't, we didn't do that one. Um, come out to Dubai, we've got this new site, you know, and I was looking at all these opportunities going, wow, this is really rocketing off faster than I thought it would. And then along with all the other opportunities in the UK, like the summertime festivals, I, I worked the circuit. I did every small and big gig possible to PR the, the thing. Mm. But that was doing all that sort of stuff and getting wound up in that excitement means you take your eye off the ball. It took my eye off the ball in terms of the proposition itself, which didn't harm it, I don't think, but it didn't grow it. Yeah. I think, you know, you've got to really watch what you're doing when, when it comes to food. There's always someone going to come and do something more exciting and, and interesting. So you've got to have your core dishes and, you, and your core proposition, but you've also got to make it exciting all the time and seasonal and, you know, you've got, to, you've got to keep your eye on it. And presumably it needs to be really, really solid before you start growing it and taking it other places and doing stuff with it. Yeah, it should be. But, um, you know, with the Mandarin or- Oriental um, deal, it just, it just meant that they would manage it for us, but we sort of gave them a management, we had a management contract in place and we'd, mm-hmm. we'd basically run rock up and, um, you know, just tell them how to do it. Um, I have drafted like, many of those uh-huh. <laughs> in my time. <laughs> it, it was great for visibility in terms of, you know, where we were positioned and the kind of market we wanted to, um, you know, be associated with. It wasn't a great deal, but it was with the Mandarin Oriental, so we thought, yes. let's do it. And so then, and then I think what really started to, we when we really started to make wrong decisions was um, uh, we, we decided to move into Harvey Nichols. They gave us a space. And that sort of cannibalised our other two businesses in a way because of the geographical location. One restaurant was on the King's Road. One restaurant was at Marble Arch in Connaught Village. And then oh, right. Harvey Nichols is got a bang in the middle. Yeah, yeah. And you could always get a seat at Harvey Nichols. You couldn't get a seat at our other restaurants before opening it. And did it was it sort of different in the presumably Harvey Nichols is kind of a daytime thing? Yeah. Or was it evening as well? It was evening as well, okay. um, and it and it wasn't it's happening. A different vibe, right? Completely. Di- yeah, I think I think it had sort of it may have had its day by then. People weren't coming up there. The the footfall wasn't there that they told us was there. Was it the one at the top of the? Don't of you just, right the top. just go there for champagne, don't you? After shopping or before shopping <laughs> depends. Yeah. I don't, but I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what do you find most uncomfortable or misunderstood about being in the restaurant trade? Um, I think these days people still think I, I I hang out in the kitchen cutting up onions and yeah, of course. having a sing song. You're a chef. I yeah. know that. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, of course, there's so many other things that go on. There's so many nuances of a restaurant. It's it's endless. You know, it's like um, it's like something new every day crops up. If someone said to me at the end of a day, a typical day, what did you do today? It wouldn't be the same as what I told them yesterday. It, it's always something different. There's there's like moving targets happening. But I certainly don't go in there and and start from scratch every single morning like the jolly old chef. Um, you know the, the you know the, t- yeah. the typical sort of character. I, I just don't do that. I create dishes. 
I train guys, I you know, mentor guys, I look at all aspects of the operation. But I think, you know, I, I shouldn't get upset. I don't really get upset, but it's, it's sort of slightly annoying is, you know, people think that I spend the entire day, you know, I get up at seven in the morning and get in the kitchen, first one in with a tea towel over my shoulder. And So you're what we consider to be more of an executive chef where you're sort of designing, kind of, you know, kind of creating, conceptualizing dishes and then sort of teaching kind of, you know, the chef, sous chef, how to kind of produce them, yeah? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And also an owner-chef, which I think is a slightly different breed because particularly once you start that chain of restaurants and you, you've got four or five sites, you can't be in any one site. No, absolutely. And you start, I mean, for me, I was always, always uh, looking out for the brand as well, you know, and I'd probably spend more time interviewing front of house staff than I would chefs because as long as my head chef in the kitchen was comfortable with a with a chef de party or a younger chef, that didn't bother me. He was in control of that guy. He could work with him. He, he should interview him. But for me, I want to know who's representing the brand at the front of house. So I'd interview all the waiters, which is unusual for someone in my position, but I wanted to make sure that they were representing the brand properly and saying the right things and, was, and were going to be happy and, and naturally hospitable. What's the best restaurant you've eaten at that isn't yours? Well, yeah, I think there's 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 two that I'd mention. One is it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called El Bulli in oh, yeah, Spain. Yeah. Spain. Yeah. So I had a chance to go there once, and that was just mind blowing. It wasn't just incredible trickery; there was substance to the food. I thought uh, on that on that particular night, it was it was really mind blowing, groundbreaking stuff. And then the other one was the French Laundry in in Napa Valley in California. Oh yeah, yeah, beautiful experience. Um, absolutely perfect representation of warm hospitality, but also excellent, excellent execution. Just beautiful. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's doors always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Scott, what's the hardest thing you do in your job and how do you deal with it? Well, I think the biggest problem facing um, our business and, and all of hospitality is staffing. That's the biggest problem facing every business right now. It's not just hospitality. But otherwise, you know, I think the other thing about recruitment is not not just that it's we're short on numbers, it's that you know, the generations coming through now, the younger generations coming through, um, are probably they, they don't feel as cut out as as the older generations for for these long hours, like you were talking about mm. before, you know, mm. they are they are taxing on the body. Their friends are out. They don't. They're getting getting a bit of FOMO. Yeah, you get FOMO yeah. the whole time, yeah. basically. And then they want to work. You know, they want to they want to be chefs. And they want to be creative and they want to produce things that they see on Instagram, but they don't want to put the hours in. And f- yeah, so they want to be up at the next level almost immediately without doing the hard work but together. That, but but that's yeah. not restricted to no. This is chefing. this I mean, is generations generation, Z, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. 
It's a shame because it, it, um, there's some skilled people coming through, but they want flexi time and, and good food takes time. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, that's the bottom line. Unless they're doing, uh, you know, something fast casual, they open a, a really great burger shop or whatever and only open it three nights a week on Deliveroo or from a dark kitchen so that they've got that, um, you know, flexibility. But to do a fully fledged restaurant, that just is backbreaking stuff. What are you most excited about for your business? Oh, it's it's the relaunch of Freak Scene. Absolutely, you know, get, getting it was it was exciting while we had it alive previously, but bringing it back again and get having the opportunity actually to do it and take it to the next level, um, fine tuning things, bringing dishes that I haven't been able to air elsewhere. You know, because there's a core Freak Scene menu that we had previously in Soho, but there's a bunch of ideas that keep flowing, and I just write them down. I got boxes of pieces of paper. I like using bits of paper. Maybe it's <laughs> wasteful in that sense. I should start typing them on my phone, but it feels better to write no, it down. It's nice having a, a picture. pen and paper. <laughs> so this is going to get a chance to air those dishes, and um, just bringing that back to life is terribly exciting. And what's what's the best? piece of advice you've ever been given? I think in the Nobu days, um, Nobu himself, the, the chef, he used to tell, not just to me, but to other people, you know, um, be humble. And I think that's, and I didn't appreciate it at and the time. And he could say that, really. Yeah, he, he, I don't know if he should have been the right, he was the right person to be saying it. I, I don't know. But well, Was he <laughs> humble, though? I think most of the time he was. Yeah. Yeah, I think generally he was. Um, I guess he was, if you look at the context of things, because he was caught up in this incredible adventure you know, nobody rocketed off like like an incredible business. You know, they rocketed off so fast globally, and and they did. They were so successful. So being grounded whilst you're rocketing off with all this fame and and the media attention that you're getting, and mm. everyone telling you that you're incredible, it must be hard. It must be really hard. Yeah, I mean, it must have been incredible. And I had a very small, small taste of that with Kuributa. You know, we we had this kind of minor success, and it's very hard not to get caught up in the in in all that. You know, the everyone telling you how great things are all the time. Well, you've done this, and how great we love your restaurant. You must be incredible, and all this kind of stuff. You you have to take a step. Get back from that and not get caught up in it because that'll that'll take your business down. Do you think that we should be looking at more philanthropy to look after people, or should we have higher taxes? I, I'm a believer in philanthropy for sure, and like talking talking about the uh, thing I'm doing in Western Australia. That's kind that's of great philanthropy. That sounds fabulous. It's giving people an opportunity or, or nudging ideas in front of them when they might not have a clue where to go, and, and giving them something excitement and, and, a, and a, something to grasp to, you know, something that they can do. But it's pretty, it's pretty rare for a community to sort of preempt what might happen. I, you know, you shut a coal mine, you shut a power plant, then you know you're going to have all these people who but are. It sounds unemployed. like they've got you've got a fixed date for when when everything shuts. Yeah, they do now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was on the cards, and then they've they've put a date on it now. So, so, so you can see this kind of brick wall coming towards yeah. you. Yeah, but having an opportunity to help uh, your hometown, I think, is one thing. But I think on a grander scale, we can all probably give our skills. Uh, out to people who require them. So tomorrow, for example, it's my first day at Wormwood Scrubs Prison as a mentor. Oh, wow. wow. So they contacted me recently and said, we've got this charity program for inmates and we've got a a restaurant called The Escape Restaurant. (laughs) 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 Giving them ideas, I know. (laughs) But, yeah, tomorrow is my first day to to sort of ease into this and and have a a conversation with them or meet them uh, and mentor them eventually. Um, with an idea, the, with the idea that when they get out, they might uh, find work in hospitality, and they might come and work for me because That's we need idea. people, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm really excited about that because I think I can monetize what I do by being a consultant when I go out to Dubai and all these places, and I can earn quite well, and I can start a restaurant and all that, and it's kind of 
it's not selfish, but I think there's a time when I can give those skills away to someone without charging. I don't need to charge for it every single time because, you know, I, I'm okay, I'm comfortable, and I think it's time to give back and let other, let other people have a go and, and have, some, have some of my knowledge. That's a great idea. When I, when I was a sous chef, my washer-upper, because it was me and the washer-upper in the evenings, was wanted by the police <laughs> for <laughs> ABH, I think, okay. something like that. And um, we used to, at the time, I was criminal law was one of the things I was studying, so I had all my books on criminal oh. law. And in the summer, we used to have the back door of this, you know, health and safety is probably really not a good idea. We used to have the back door of the kitchen open because it was so hot the whole time. And there was a road just running past the back of the kitchen. And every so often a police car would go past and he would duck behind the dishwasher, <laughs> terrified of getting getting caught. I, every day I'd like say to him, but if you go and hand yourself in, they'll probably, you know, slap you on the wrist or whatever and let you go. But if they catch you, you are going to go down. This is the thing, it just didn't compute. And he would just kind of go, but I don't want to. And he couldn't think further than, but I will not enjoy it, to what will be the result of this or that. So actually, you know, giving them a trade, teaching them how to do something and explaining to them more logical thinking is probably brilliant. Yeah, and I think there's another aspect to that as well, you know, because it's it's one thing teaching people about hospitality or whatever it is, uh, but particularly hospitality because it's long hours and uh, I guess a lot, of, a lot of things are, but, you know, the, this is hot, sweaty physical environment yeah. as well as the long hours and it gets, you know, it, it can burn you out eventually. I think yeah. teaching people a, a way of coping um, with, with that and, and trying to leave emotion out of it as much as possible. It's, 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 a, it's a funny situation. You've got to be creative and passionate, but you've got to take the emotion out of it a bit because it's, it does help Just you survive better. Top three reads, podcasts or records? It doesn't have to be three either. It can oh, be I like the number three. I've got, okay. I've got three. I can keep going if you want, but, um, Go on then. you know, you regret it. Um, okay, well, I've got this little tiny um, pamphlet almost. It's a small book on Stoicism, but it's called The Little Book of Stoicism by Jonas Salzberger, and I think that's fantastic. It's an easy read. It, it, um, it's nothing too taxing, but it gives it you a good... Is just one page that says, get over it? <laughs> yeah, but they, kind of. No, it, it's a proper book, but it, 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 compared to other uh, literature on the on the subject, it's... It's, it's brief. It's so what was brief. it, Joseph Salzberger? Uh, Jonas. Jonas. Yeah, okay. it's fantastic. And I, I think the next thing, um, it isn't a podcast or anything, but someone <laughs> made a mind said, this, chucked this in front of me the other day. Um, have you guys heard of Train Guy by Bob Mortimer? No. Yes. Oh, God, that's I funny. I bloody love Bob <laughs> and everything about him. It's probably the funniest thing I've come across in forever, right? I mean, he's he's pretending to talk to his mate on the train, but he's yeah, sitting But he's really train. posh. Yeah, he's really posh. Yeah. And, he, and he'll, he'll say, you know, things like, get the ideas biscuits out and stuff like this. Or, Let's do a thought topsy. <laughs> What's it called? Train Guy. Train, train guy. guy. He mainly publishes them on Twitter, but you can yeah, see them all on YouTube. Them. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's brilliant. And then um, uh, something I've been listening to lately, and it's it's a it's a classic album by the Pixies from 1989 called Doolittle, and I'd stopped listening to it. I mean, I'm a huge Pixies fan. I see them every time they play, but something uh, possessed me to put it on lately, and it just sounds great. If you turn it up and listen to the guitars... And, and, and the recording, and there's, there's there's so many things going on, and it's it's I've sort of fallen in love with that that particular album again. So. Again, it's, it's always really nice when you re-fall in love or rediscover an album that you used to love when you were much younger, and suddenly like you hear a song, you go, oh, I must listen to that. I mean, I was listening to the Lightning Seas or something the other day, and I thought it's such joyful music. So yeah, yeah. they were great. Yeah, it yeah. also feels like there's a bit of a frustrated rock star 
somewhere in your psyche. Yeah, yeah, there, there definitely like, is. Yeah. yeah, for years and years, I, I wrote and 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 did amateur recordings of my own songs. You know, just you know, funny stuff or whatever. But um, I still I still play and I'm still I'm practicing um, a different way of playing at the moment. Okay, so okay. which is which is fun. What's a different way of playing? Oh, for me, I'm As just in just stylistically, or yeah, I mean, trying trying to play properly. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> trying to follow the notes on the music. Yeah. <laughs> my next big thing is I'm going to learn to play the piano accordion. I've decided. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. One of my friends does that. It's the worst noise in the entire. No, I know exactly, but I'm just going to piss yeah. all my neighbours off. Are you semi detached? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, you're going to get cease and desist letters. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's fine. But no, it was funny because I was saying to this friend of mine, I said, "Oh, I'm going to do this when I." retire she goes I fuck when you retire why don't you start now because I'm a long way off from retiring and it's like that's a really valid point I'm just going to do it so yeah yeah. Yeah. so I will uh, once I've got a few tunes pick up bring it into the office and play for you (laughs) sounds good (laughs) okay (laughs) jolly good so that was this week's episode of BWB Extra and we'll be back with a new episode next week until then it's bye for now bye